Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull, and I appreciate you being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Today we're talking about commercial real estate financing. We're calling the show just that, commercial real estate financing today. And it's interesting when you look at financing, sometimes the way financing goes, real estate goes. And it's certainly uh, a barometer of what's going on in the commercial real estate world as, as, as the lenders and everyone involved in that market is, is really closely looking at the economy and the market. Now we've recently had uh, some uh, rates uh, lowered by the Fed, right? Um, and we're close to the end of the cycle. So I think there's a lot of interest in the debt market and what's happening. That's what we're going to cover today. Please welcome my first guest. It's Joe McBride, and he's Director of Research and Applied Data with TREP, and he's joining us on the phone. Joe, thanks for being with us, sir. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, as you analyze and look at this market all the time from your desk, you know what are you seeing for transaction volume and, and availability of debt right now? Sure. Well, you know, from where I sit, the availability of debt couldn't really be any better right now. You know, TREP is really focused on the commercial mortgage-backed securities market and the structured products world, which covers about just about a quarter of the commercial, the total commercial real estate finance uh, lending environment. CMBS issuance right now is on pace to just about hit the same mark as it did in 2018, which is around just over $80 billion in new issuance. You know, underwriting trends, uh, loan-to-values, debt service coverage ratios, loan rates, those are all kind of, uh, at least from our point of view, still in pretty safe territory. And given the, you know, Powell coming out uh, not too long ago and, and lowering rates, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a little, you know, couple-of-month increase in refis that might not otherwise happen. Yeah. And, of course, uh, we're not in a, in a market with a lot of defaults, but there's always some amount of defaults all the time, right, Joe? What are you seeing for trends there? Sure. So uh, our overall, you know, TREP CMBS delinquency rate is at an all-time low right now, which is great. Uh, it's also a little bit scary because <laughs> anytime you see anything that's good at an all-time low, you're expecting a little bit of an increase. Um, but then again, I can remember being at my desk in you know, five years ago saying, are we at the top? Are we at the top? <laughs> um, so, sure, we are starting to see some, uh, you know, delinquencies, some watch-listed loans, some specially serviced loans from post-crisis deals. I think a lot of those are happening just as a natural kind of state of how any pool of commercial real estate loans after two or three or four years a couple of them are going to run into some sort of issues. I don't see any um, outsized increase happening in any new issue uh, areas. I think, you know, you have your normal story of retail and, and what's going on there. But I think a lot of that has been baked in uh, to the underwriting of new deals and also to the kind of loss expectations or the dispositions that have already happened, happened uh, um, on old deals. So, we have nowhere to go but up in terms of delinquency, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we bump along at a very, very low rate uh, for the near future. Yeah, and like I mentioned in the opening, the availability of financing can, can really impact uh, values of commercial real estate. And uh, uh, there's some new accounting standards, right, coming out that uh, could potentially impact 
uh, availability of debt. Tell us about that, Jeff. Sure. So, yeah, there's a new standard uh, starting in the beginning of 2020 called CECL. It stands for Current Expected Credit Loss. Um, now, don't fall asleep on me. I know it's an accounting <laughs> standard, but uh, it is pretty interesting because it takes uh, an old standard, which meant if you had a book of loans or you're a bank and you have a, a loans on your balance sheet, if you had one or two that you expected to take some loss that maybe were in foreclosure or REO, you would then have to create a reserve based on how much loss you expected for those particular loans. Now, that is going away, and what's replacing it is CECL, uh, which means that banks and other lending institutions that hold loans on their balance sheet, they will have to reserve for the total life of loan expected credit loss on all of the loans on their balance sheet. So you can think, you know, for somebody who has uh, 50 or 60 loans, that's not a big deal. But for a bank, a mid-sized bank that has 5,000 or 7,000 commercial real estate loans, this can be a really big impact on their earnings because it's something that goes directly to the income statement. And also just on, you know, how much they have to spend logistically on data and modeling capabilities and, and quantitative capabilities that maybe they didn't have in-house already. And you know, just to, just to end that point, when you book a new loan, now you're going to have to reserve some credit loss against it. And, you know, we're kind of waiting to see how that affects the availability of commercial real estate finance from these typical players, as well as if it, if it has any effect on pricing. So I think those two questions remain outstanding. Uh, it's definitely a big topic in the market, in the, in the CRE finance market. Um, and I guess, you know, we're going to see in a couple of months starting in uh, 2020. And what would be an example of reserves that would be required for, for a loan that's in good standing and, and is, has just been created? Sure. So if you ask the originator, he'd say 0%, right? <laughs> yes. Because nobody expects to take a loss on a loan when they write it. And, right. and that makes sense. Um, but I think historically, if you just look at banks who lend on commercial real estate, they have uh, current reserves in place of anywhere from 30 basis points to 130 basis points. And if you really dive down into that, a lot of that reserve is actually due to, you know, regulators pushing for banks to have higher loss cushions just in case losses occur. So I would say you're kind of in that, you know, that same range now, but you could end up seeing it be a little bit higher because of the expectation that now that we're reserving on the whole book and we're reserving for a whole life of loan instead of just for one year, it should technically be higher. Um, so whether that actually does affect how, you know, an originator is allowed to price a loan or the type of terms that'll, that an originator or an underwriter is allowed to give, you know, that's where you could see it really uh, affect the front of office operations. I see. So Cecil uh, reserves might uh, adjust for each loan differently. There's not just a, a stated uh, basis points that uh, is required for the loan amount overall. Just it could adjust. That's right. It's supposed to be based on you know the underlying loan and property information as well as the banks or the lenders' uh, expectations of the future macroeconomic uh, world, and that's where. Because there's no set rule, it makes it hard to implement, you know, because it's, it's an estimate as opposed to a, you know, a prescriptive rule. Yeah. 
So everything is supposed to get easier and uh, Cypher becomes more difficult to figure out. <laughs> well, Joe, Oftentimes with, with policy decisions, that's yeah, what happens, yeah. That's right. Well, Joe, what do you see for uh, rates? Uh, as we mentioned, uh, the Fed uh, just uh, lowered their rate. And what do you expect moving forward and what trends are you seeing right now? Sure. On the rate side, you know, it's interesting. We've been talking about this uh, yield curve inversion for many months now and how that's an art that's oftentimes an arbiter of uh, recession. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have the, the argument that the long end of the curve is really being deflated by uh, how much capital is flowing into the U.S. from negative interest rate environments in Europe. Right, so w whether the the in inverted yield curve now is really an indicator of recession or not, I can't say. I wish I could. Um, but in terms of commercial real estate on the ground, I think I was in a meeting last or two weeks ago when um, the Fed made the announcement about interest rates going down, and we were meeting with uh, a player in the commercial real estate finance market, and they said we have to go. Our phones are ringing off the hook on refinances. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a nice blip, you know, an increase over the next uh, two or three months or just to finish out the year where we may have expected to be in the $80 billion, uh, issuance area for 2019. And maybe we end up, you know, a little bit higher than that, you know, and be pleasantly surprised because uh, you start to see a few more refinancings than we originally expected. And Joe, what do um, lenders overall think about uh, asset values right now? Yeah, I think it's, it's generally known that we are at, at a peak, right? Or at least we are at a, at a high. Um, if you look back in CRE price indexes and uh, look back at 2007, we are now decently above that peak. Uh, at the same time, though, back in 2007, lenders were lending to higher leverage levels. So, you know, where in 2006 and 7, the average loan to value on a new commercial real estate loan in CMBS was around 70, we're more in the 58 to 60 range now. So even if you say, yeah, valuations are very high, we still have a lot of cushion built into these loans that, you know, if things were to go down by 10 or 20 percent, the loans technically would still be safe. Um, now, primary gateway markets where the big institutional players play, you know, we're starting to see some softness uh, in terms of, you know, condo sales and, and rent on the multifamily side and occupancies, things like that. Um, but I think cash is always going to flow to those markets, both from the U.S. and from outside the U.S. And I wouldn't be surprised if we there was a little bit more room to run in kind of those secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah, and those lower loan-to-value ratios, obviously, it always makes it a lot safer for the lenders and, and those that invest in them. Well, um, but there's also now a lot more bridge lenders, right, that uh, help you get a little more LTV. What do you see there? Sure. So that's a, that's a good point. Uh, right now, we have seen a uh, very significant increase in the issuance of commercial real estate CLOs. Those are collateralized loan obligations. They're essentially pools of uh, two to five year floating rate uh, commercial real estate loans on 
what we would call transitional or semi-transitional properties. So an office building that uh, is 50% occupied needs to be renovated. There's a business plan put in place and a lender that lends, like I said, for that two to five year period with the expectation that at the end of this, the property is going to be repositioned and it's going to be 100% occupied and the value is going to be increased significantly and they'll be able to get taken out by longer term fixed rate financing. Uh, the issuance of those securities doubled uh, last year in 2018, and we wouldn't be surprised to see them double again in 2019. Um, there's a kind of a big, uh, large demand out there for these types of bonds that are backed by these loans. First of all, because they're floating rate, and in a volatile interest rate environment, uh, fixed income investors like floating rate bonds. And they're also shorter term, right? So shorter duration means less exposure to increasing interest rates. And that's where we've seen a lot of demand uh, push towards those types of loans and bonds. Interesting. Well, increased returns usually means an increased uh, volatility, right, or risk. Um, so w what do these creators of these CLOs say about the risk involved? Sure. So on the lender side, like same uh, – same tongue-in-cheek comments about Cecil is, you know, a lender never expects to take any loss. Um, they, and, you know, there is something to be said for the structure of these types of loans, the uh, underwriting that's done, the due diligence that's done. You know, a lot of these types of lenders are on the smaller side, um, as opposed to the big J.P. Morgans of the world. Uh, these are more like mortgage REITs and private equity funds and, and things like that, where they have relationships with the sponsors. They understand the business plan thoroughly. They understand the markets and the neighborhoods and the property types that they're working with. And they build a lot of safety into the loan structure, right? They'll have interest reserves. They'll have recourse to a wealthy sponsor who's sponsoring the, the project. Um, and they'll have a lot of Let's, say, let's call them covenants, right? So they, the sponsor has to meet certain uh, goalposts throughout the project life in order to get you know, future funding and, and to get the loan funded to its full commitment. So while they are technically riskier because it's not a 100% occupied, stable, fixed-rate financing, uh, there is a lot of structure and a lot of underwriting and due diligence that goes into it, um, which does give both the lenders and the investors on the bond side, you know, a decent feeling of safety. Yeah, and definitely a place for, for those type of loans uh, at all times, but especially uh, today. Well, uh, Joe, before we let you go, what, what, what could be a quick tip you'd leave for our listeners, maybe if they're a borrower or a lender, uh, or, or one of the two, what would, uh, tip would you leave them with? Get your data in order. <laughs> That's where, uh, you know, I may be, I'm kind of, I live in the data analytics world, so I'm a little bit biased in terms of that. But no matter what is going on, um, where you live in the, in the process of commercial real estate, as we move into the future, the uh, analytics that you're going to need to do, the reporting you're going to need to do to investors or how much data you're going to need to provide to a lender if you're looking to borrow, or if you are a if you are a, a lender who's going to have to answer to the FDIC or the OCC or even your own internal risk management. I've been living it for the past five or seven years. That 
if you get the data right, you can make really good decisions. So I think I, that's my uh, that would be my final word there. Well, I like it. Information is power, right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, Joe, thanks for joining us, sir. We appreciate you being on the show. All right, Michael, thanks for having me. And if you'd like more information from TREP, check them out. It's T-R-E-P-P. Uh, and uh, check out their services and, and what they do. And stay with us. We're going to have more on the commercial loan market in the U.S. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. The segment is brought to you by RedIQ.com. Check it out. It takes kind of magically takes static PDFs and, and Excel spreadsheets and puts it right in the software. It saves a ton of time for underwriting multifamily. It's called RedIQ.com. Well, today we're talking about commercial real estate financing and, and apartment financing. You know, it seems like uh, the way financing goes can certainly impact the cycle uh, and the market. Please welcome my next guest. It's Adam Finkel. He's a principal and co-founder with Tower Capital, and he's joining us on the phone. Adam, thanks for being with us. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me with you today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, Adam helps uh, borrowers and property owners secure financing for all types of properties all around uh, the U.S. He's headquartered in Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, you know, the first thing I think uh, uh, that my listeners and viewers are curious about, Adam, is kind of what are you seeing for rates? It seems like rates have kind of been up and then down and uh, sideways. Uh, what do you see rates now and, and how are they trending? Sure. Um, you know, we've been expecting interest rates to rise for quite some time now. It looked last year like they were finally going to. Um, and then, you know, now they're down about 100 basis points where they were, you know, fourth quarter of 2018. So the borrowers have certainly gotten some relief. Um, you know, many of the loans that we do um, are going to be based upon, you know, the 10-year treasury is a major index for commercial real estate loans. And, you know, that was below 2% about a week or two ago, and now it's up about 10 basis points. So it seems to be... Uh, bouncing right along that, you know, 2%, uh, 2.1% yield area. Um, we're anticipating rates to to stay low for the foreseeable future and unless there's some kind of shock to the system. I know that, um, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on the feds to start even lowering rates again. I'm not sure that that's uh, necessary at this point in time. So, uh, right now, we're in a very low interest rate environment, and I anticipate it to stay that way for at least the near term. Yeah, well, I guess that's good news in the commercial real estate world. Um, well, Adam, what do you see for underwriting uh, today? You know, it seems like uh, some people we talk to are concerned about the length of this cycle. What has it been, 10 years? It's been a, been a great run, and some people are thinking, well, surely a good time's at the end sometime soon. Um, but, you know, all the indicators seem very positive. So what are you seeing for underwriting? Are any of your lenders starting to be a little more stringent? You know, I'm seeing underwriting standards being maintained. 
I'm not necessarily seeing them tighten up at this point in time. Um, I think really throughout this cycle, uh, unlike last cycle, the lenders have really maintained uh, pretty stringent underwriting standards. You know, they're, they're not going overboard on leverage. They're uh, making sure that a minimum debt service coverage ratio is maintained. Um, so that's leading to a very healthy finance market right now. Um, you know, certainly in some markets, uh, you know, there can be some hesitation about supply coming on board, um, you know, especially when you start to see, you know, multifamily in certain markets, you know, there's been a lot of new development. Um, you know, I think everyone's very cognizant of where we are in the cycle right now. It seems to be long in the tooth, yet the underlying metrics are very healthy. So, um, you know, again, I mean, the lenders are, are, you know, still being pretty strict with, with their underwriting in yeah. today's environment. Well, it, uh, I guess it's good if they're uh, somewhat uh, conservative. Uh, keep us all in line, right, Adam? But what about uh, some of the sources? Are any of the sources, Freddie, Fannie, banks, are any of them showing any reluctance on any certain sectors? You mentioned multifamily, but, uh, you know, heck, multifamily and industrial have been so hot. And, and of course, there's pockets you have to watch for of overbuilding and, 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 and bad markets anywhere. But when you look at overall, are there any uh, lenders or banks that are kind of pushing away from certain property types right now? You know, I think as you alluded to, you know, multifamily industrial have really remained the darlings of the market. Um, you know, retail, there still seems to be a lot of heartburn and hesitation with retail. I think we've seen that over, you know, really since the downturn. Um, you know, we've seen retail properties being repositioned. Um, I think it really comes down to uh, the market and where the property is located and the strength of the sponsorship. Um, but I would say if there is one sector that people are still wary of, retail would be that. Yeah. And I went to your uh, website, your Tower Capital website, and I saw that look, you've done some development uh, loans and some uh, land loans. So uh, what do you see in there? Yeah, well, certainly there's a lot of appetite for development. You know, where we are in the cycle right now, you're seeing a lot of uh, new developments coming online. Um, with a strong sponsor and a strong property and a strong location, there's a lot of available financing. Um, if any one of those things are off, it can be very challenging. So, um, you know, what we are seeing out there is both with, you know, conventional lenders along with the alternative lenders that have become more prevalent in the marketplace today, uh, everyone has a lot of money that they're looking to try to place. And so, you know, there is still that caution of, you know, what happened last time around. So, you know, that's why we're seeing underwriting being maintained. But, you know, if you can check off all the boxes, strong deal, sp strong sponsor, strong location, um, you know, the financing is very, very competitive today. And Adam, the alternative financing uh, that you alluded to there, is, is some of that, uh, you know, financing that can't be done uh, with the bank or Freddie or Fannie or a live company, is that uh, kind of second choice financing that maybe has a, a bit more risk? Or are you seeing some of this alternative financing uh, really be competitive uh, with the major lenders? Sure. Well, you know, the alternative lenders certainly have their place. Um, you know, typically we're seeing the alternative lenders uh, are debt funds. 
or, or opportunistic funds that typically have a shorter uh, time horizon than the traditional lender. So, you know, they want to be in and out of a deal in, you know, two, three, you know, four yield years, get their yield, and then recycle uh, that money. And so, you know, typically on the shorter-term bridge loans for transitional properties, um, the debt funds, the alternative lenders, they're a good source of financing for that. Um, we've really seen the spreads uh, reduced greatly in that space because of all of the competition. Um, so, you know, we're seeing on average, you know, bridge deals call it for, a, you know, a transitional multifamily property, you know, pricing from, you know, LIBOR plus, you know, mid 200s to, you know, LIBOR plus, you know, mid fives, mid sixes, depending on the, uh, the risk uh, threshold for the property. Um, you know, another product that we're seeing being offered by the alternative lenders is what we call these stretch senior loans, where it's allowing, uh, you know, investors and developers to obtain higher leverage than, you know, the traditional the traditional lender. So we're seeing loan to cost being pushed up, you know, 80, 85, 90% in some cases where uh, the lender is actually holding an internal A note and B note. Um, and they're offering the borrower a blended cost of capital for that. And so that's becoming very, very prevalent as, um, you know, people are really trying to uh, you know, push their leverage. You know, we work with a lot of developers who are syndicating and, you know, obviously the higher the leverage, the more uh, of the profits that they can keep in their pocket. So, um, Well, I like uh, it. So 85 to 95% in some cases. And of course, that's non-recourse, right, Adam? <laughs> correct. Non-recourse <laughs> really? interest only. It is. Nice. Nice. You know, and we haven't seen, we're, we're brokered to Southeast and we do a lot of different property types here. Um, and I've not seen any issues, seems like, for a long time with appraisals uh, coming in uh, uh, low or how many problems with them. Are, are you seeing that any, anywhere? Uh, are there any changes going on with the appraisal uh, process with the banks or anything? The, any tips or things we should watch out for? You know, when it comes to appraisals, typically on an acquisition, the appraiser is usually going to find a way to get there if, you know, the numbers are realistic and the deal makes sense, um, even if someone's pushing value because you have a willing buyer and a willing seller. And so, you know, where we see more challenges is on the refinances when someone's trying to do a cash-out refinance, say, you know, they bought the property a few years ago, um, you know, they renovated it, they got the NOI up, and now they're trying to pull some cash out, recoup their capital, and then reinvest that into other deals. And so, you know, quite often when we have folks that are really, you know, pushing for dollars, they're pushing for LTV, you know, they can stretch too much, and then that's where you can get into trouble sometimes. But, you know, I'll be honest, you know, in a market like Phoenix, when, you know, some of these multifamily properties were trading for, you know, $20,000, $30,000 a unit, uh, you know, five or six years ago. Now they're going for $100,000 a door, $80,000, $90,000 a door. People are saying, well, how can that be? You know, how are they getting the financing? Well, the thing is, 
you know, people have renovated the properties, the rents are up, we're in a stronger market, there's higher NOI, so, you know, higher loan dollars and higher values can be supported. So, you know, sometimes it can be somewhat psychological when someone's been in a market for a long time and they've seen prices and now they're wondering, you know, this isn't making sense. But, you know, when you really dig into the numbers, um, you know, we're in a pretty strong market right now and that's, you know, helping to push the values along with, you know, obviously low interest rates and, and cap rates remaining yeah. uh, pretty low as well. Yeah, that makes good good sense. And, and Adam, if you could, before you leave us, uh, what tips would you give borrowers today to maybe make the process easier to get a loan or faster to get a loan? You know, some of these properties have multiple competing bids and the sellers come back and want things to be done very quickly. Any tips for borrowers in that regard? You know, I would say just really having all of your ducks in a row, um, you know, perhaps having a letter written by, you know, your lender or, you know, whoever you're working with, your, your finance professional. Um, you know, what we see as far as once you get involved in the transaction, um, typically the deal is only going to go as fast as the borrower can provide the information. So if the borrower is providing information expeditiously, the loan will go, you know, much quicker and much smoother. Do you ever order your, go ahead and order your third-party reports uh, in advance on, on day one, or, or is that uh, you really need to wait and see who the lender is? You always want to wait for who the lender is because the lenders are going to have their pre-approved lists of vendors, and they're also going to have their specific requirements, um, you know, for the vendors. So sometimes if someone, you know, goes out and they get an appraisal early, that appraisal may not be able to be used. So you typically want to wait for, you know, the lender to order their own third-party reports. And how much time are you seeing from start to finish uh, typically to get these loans closed today? You know, with a traditional bank lender, credit union, um, or for apartments, Fannie or Freddie, it's typically going to be a 45 to 60-day process from once you get the lender engaged, you know, you sign a loan application, you send them their deposit, um, you know, then the clock starts ticking. Some of the debt funds, opportunistic funds that we were talking about earlier, you know, they can close in 30 days. Some of them can close, you know, even shorter. But, you know, obviously those are going to be the higher interest loans. You're paying for that speed. Right, right. Absolutely. We, we provided some money for someone the other day that wanted to close in three days. Uh, of course, that's expensive money. But if the deal's right, it can certainly make a lot of sense. Well, Adam, thanks for joining us, sir. We appreciate you being on the show. Great. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. And thank you for joining us. Well, stay with us. We're going to have more on commercial real estate financing. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about financing sources, commercial real estate financing. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com or give me a call. Well, one of the things that's really interesting about the government is they do help us <laughs> with some financing. 
and you've all heard about SBA financing, there are some clever things that can be done, whether you're a landlord, uh, investor, buyer, seller, businesses, uh, you need TI dollars, things like that. Well, let's get into some clever ideas and some benefits for SBA loans and some tips. Please welcome my guest. It's Melanie Brown, and Melanie is Senior VP with Seacoast Commerce Bank, and they're a bank that's really dedicated to commercial real estate loans and SBA-type loans. Melanie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Well, first of all, uh, SBA loans, you know, who, who are they good for, what kinds of properties and situations, and maybe what kinds of, of, of properties specifically are best? Well, SBA only funds owner-occupied, mm -hmm. so the borrower has to be acquiring it for use for their own business, so typically they have to be in 51% occupancy. Mm -hmm. If it's a new construction, they look for the borrower to occupy at least 60%. So it's great for somebody who's been paying off somebody else's building for years. Mm -hmm. Um, gives them the opportunity to leverage because SBA, one of the benefits is higher leverage financing. It gives yeah. them the benefit of being able to buy their building versus paying off somebody else's and having the benefit of the depreciation and the interest expense write-off, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, it's also great if somebody's looking to go into a lease space, let's say if they're doing a franchise, they can go in and they can get financing for the tenant improvements along with the equipment, working capital, and maybe the initial inventory that they need and get a long-term amortization as well. Okay, and we were talking earlier and you mentioned that you're doing some loans on hotels really all around the country right now. So is it good for hotels and what other types of properties do you see a lot of SBA lending? Special use properties are kind of a niche for the SBA industry and that's because a lot of banks don't like to underwrite a special use asset. So motels, hotels, uh, storage facilities, car washes, convenience stores all naturally lend themselves towards an SBA loan product because of the specialty use of them. It's not as easy to liquidate, you have to understand the property. So we use a going concern value a lot of times on those type of assets versus just the true real estate value and able to lend um, more dollars on those, especially if it's an acquisition situation. Yeah, that's great. And, and some of us have been in the business for a long time that listen and watch this show and, and we saw the, uh, the worst downturn we've had in my career uh, and a lot of loans were called due. Uh, a lot of commercial loans have calls. They have balloons in five years or whatever term. So are there some SBA loans that are fully amortized and you don't have to worry about balloons? That's correct. Mm -hmm. um, I say you know, the benefits are higher leverage because a lot of times you can get up to 90% financing. And that depends a lot of times on the lender. So you've got to really shop lenders and make sure you get the maximum leverage that, that's available out there through the SBA loan program. Because even though the SBA sets guidelines, each bank can apply their own standards to those guidelines. So you want to shop and make sure you get the best deal, but it's leverage, it's um, amortization, and then on the 7A loan program and on the 504, which is uh, one of the programs where there's a bond debenture, there is no call. So there is no balloon. And that really comes into play that if we ever do see a downturn like we had again, it benefits that bar. And the fact that the bank has to work with them through that downturn, even if their financials are off one particular year, let's just say they're whatever the nature of their business is, they have a down cycle. If the bank goes to do the annual review, which every bank will do, if the cash flow is not what it's supposed to be, but let's say if a bank requires a 1.25 debt coverage ratio, and let's say the coverage this particular year may be a 0.9 to 1 coverage, that bank has to work with that borrower. They can't just decide to get nervous and call that loan on the borrower 
or if the real estate values were to go down in that area or if the market had a downturn, that bank cannot call that loan. They have to work with that borrower through that situation. That's great. So only the way, way they can really foreclose is, for non, is default or non-payment. Yeah, we say yeah. that it's basically a default yeah. pay, you know, loan program. Yeah, and, and, you know, and hopefully that never happens to, to any of our listeners, but you know, I was in a situation where one of my buildings uh, a lender came in at the worst time of the worst time of the downturn. Said, "Hey, pay us off. Uh, loan, the building's in perfect shape. I have good credit." And they still said, "Hey, pay us off right now. We're going to foreclose." <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was working for a lot of banks selling REO. So I said, "You know, I work for you guys. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah. We're foreclosed anyway." So I had to go to another bank, uh, and, and luckily, BBT was great. Uh, they they looked at at me and, and, and my credit and, and, and who I am and gave me a loan and wasn't worried about you know, a particular market at the time and knew it would bounce back as well. Right. Um, well, so, so and you mentioned shopping you know, uh, lenders. Even if you know you want an SBA loan, you, you look at other lenders because not only might you get a better uh, deal, but also some lenders uh, maybe are not lending on your particular property type, right? That's, that's correct, yep. yeah. Hotels happen to be one that a lot of lenders just mm -hmm. shy away from. So mm -hmm. you have to really know um, what lenders' appetites are and, and definitely shop around because there's you can find a lender for just about anything out there. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen that where somebody's going to buy a certain property and they talk to one lender and the lender kind of poo-poo's the deal. That's a, a business term, poo-poo. <laughs> and. Uh, and then they think that they're not going to get a loan from anyone or it's not a good deal when really maybe that lender in reality just isn't doing any more loans on that kind of property. That's correct. Yeah, and you got to watch out for that. So and what are some other ways that, that lenders, some borrowers, mistakes they've made? What else should they avoid? What are some other tips for somebody doing a, an SBA loan? Well, I would say they need to be prepared. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the number one thing that I see and everybody will complain about that's a lender is that borrowers come to the bank expecting to borrow millions of dollars and they are not financially prepared. They haven't filed their tax returns, they haven't pulled their year-to-date financials. Mm -hmm. You know, they just aren't prepared to apply for the loan. So, you know, SBA gets a bad rap as far as the time to close the transaction. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly because the borrowers take typically 30 days to pull all their financials together in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. And the SBA, being the nature of the program that it is, where we do allow projection-based lending, mm -hmm. which is different from conventional lending. You know, conventional lending, typically you gotta have two years of solid cash flow. Well, SBA, they allow us to underwrite loans based on projections. So a lot of times it requires, uh, the client has to put together a business plan along with projections. And yeah. so that can take time as well. So again, it's just being prepared, coming to the bank, having your financials in order, have your personal financial statement up to date, and be prepared because that's going to save a lot of time on closing the transaction. Yeah, and that makes sense. And one of the things you mentioned is a benefit is a potential leverage. And you know, what are some of the higher leverage deals that you've seen close SBA? Well, when it comes to real estate, somebody's just buying real estate, typically the maximum loan to value is around 90%. But that doesn't mean that that is the most you can find. If you're doing an acquisition, let's say it's a business acquisition, there's real estate and there's goodwill and there's equipment, 
there's, there's no maximum loan to value on those uh, types of transactions. I mean, they can be as high as 130, 140% because the SBA loan program, and, and I'm speaking specifically about the SBA 7A because that's where those transactions would fall into. Um, there's no guideline as far as loan to value. That, again, is going to be lender specific. Um, how much goodwill is one lender willing to lend is going to vary from lender to lender. It's going to be different from somebody else. And then the real estate, it's always nice to have that real estate in there. But again, it may only be a part of that transaction. So the loan to value could be, you know, 130, 140%. It's going to be cash flow driven. So that's one of the difference. And I've closed uh, several loans with you over the years. So I know that, that you're good at what you do and you, and you uh, really know it inside and out. But how would people gauge, how would they pick the right person, lender, source to, to use? Well, I'd say it's definitely important to shop. It's mm -hmm. definitely to work with a lender that has a preferred lender status um, okay. that comes into play primarily with the SBA 7A loan program. And just to tell you really quick the difference, because I've mentioned the 7A and then there's the 504. The 7A is sort of the catch-all SBA 7A loan program. It's got the highest dollar budget on an annual basis. Um, because it can fund not only real estate, but you can roll in a whole project, again, that may include equipment, working capital, initial inventory, et cetera. Um, the SBA loan programs are all fixed asset financing, but the 7A, you can roll in the shorter term inventory and working capital. The 504 program is strictly for real estate and large machinery and equipment type transactions. Um, the 504 is where you partner the bank we fund the first mortgage, and then you partner with a certified development company that underwrites a second mortgage, typically maxed at 50% of the project. And um, they would, on behalf of the SBA, underwrite a bond venture. And those rates are fixed for 20 to 25 years, and they're in the three and a halfs right now, so well. really, really good. The 7A loan program, again, is the largest program because it's a catch-all, and you can fund, again, real estate, equipment, working capital, inventory, et cetera. It allows you to fund business acquisitions, um, debt refinance, et cetera, as well. And um, the, the average term is 25 years. Those rates typically are going to be variable. They're variable rates because of the long-term amortization. Um, and a lot of the banks actually securitize that paper in the secondary market. So it's important to have those, those rates variable. Um, the bond ventures do not balloon, but the banks can balloon those first mortgages. All right. And you mentioned time to, to close uh, an SBA loan. And I know back in the day, it seemed like early on it, when I was got in my career, it was like, oh, they take too long, they take too long. But then it kind of sped up, right? What, what's the timetable right now? I would say on a typical um, 7A transaction, it's probably 60 days. Mm -hmm. On a 504, it's probably probably closer to 90. And that's just mm -hmm. because you're going through the bank first mortgage underwriting and then mm -hmm. the CDC as well. And then the SBA actually reviews those deals as well. So you've got basically three people looking at that transaction in the 7A, the lender, if they're preferred lender, they can move a lot faster. I see, yeah. okay. And what are uh, costs involved? Are they similar to, to a bank loan? They're going to be a little bit more expensive okay. because the government wants their fee for yeah. guaranteeing those loans. So the bond adventure fees and then there's a 7A guarantee fee. Um, it, so it does drive the closing cost up, but the 
the hope is that those borrowers, you know, are only going to buy a commercial building one time. So the hope is that they're only going to pay this fee one time. They're not going to have to worry about paying appraisal fees and renewal fees, five and ten year, you know, bull, uh, balloons. So typically they're going to run a little bit higher. Instead of a typical three percent, they're going to be running a little over five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you know, and there's uh, I bought my first building. Uh, well, I went my first building, but I bought a building for my business about 23 years ago, and I did an SBA loan. It was nice because I get in leverage, so I saved cash for for my business, right? right. Uh, and I got in. I I, I had 51% of the building or more, and then I grew into the entire building at some point, and then some point grew larger than that building, uh, and and then still owned the property uh, as a rental property, and now it's a uh, regular uh, conventional loan, but but wow, can it really it can really help uh, small business owners? And you know, one of the things that I've uh, I've seen over the years of helping small business owners when they're ready to sell their property is sometimes they go and kick and scream and to buy a building. Uh, I, they didn't really want to do it. They did it to save costs. So they did it to control their their environment, and they didn't really want to put down the equity. Well, SBA kind of lets you put in less equity. But what I find is. You know, you're running a business and all of a sudden time flies, right? It's yeah. like, you're, like, I've had my business now for 22 years and wow. it seems like yesterday. That's awesome. So I, I see these small business owners and, and medium-sized business owners to look at it, wow, I bought it kicking and screaming, but now it's such a windfall. You know, you get all that principal reduction over the time, you get the inflation yeah. of, of the rents and values, and all of a sudden you've got a windfall. Uh, so I think uh, for the right businesses, it's really good option to consider buying your, your building and, and I think some of those are some of the special purpose buildings that you mentioned they're perfect right uh, also I think medical uh, practices are good and it does help when those um, business owners go to sell their business mm -hmm. it is a tremendous help mm -hmm. for the lender to have that mm -hmm. real estate asset in the transaction yeah. so they have collateral and you know if they sell the business they don't necessarily have to sell that building they can do what you did they can refinance it into a conventional loan yeah. and keep it as an investment property and yeah. just rent the building to whoever buys their business yeah absolutely and we're helping a lot of businesses that are selling their businesses and we're selling the real estate first on a single tenant net lease basis uh, and they're getting more value for their property in the real estate by us selling the, the real estate first than the business controlling the real estate on a long-term lease um, and then selling the business. So, so there could be a lot of benefits of, of buying and, and using SBA. Final tip for our listeners regarding SBA? You know, just remember that it's leverage, longer term amortizations, and no balloons. Yeah, don't miss out on it. Well, if you'd like yeah. to know more information, Melanie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this. Thanks for having me, Michael. If you'd like more information, uh, Google their uh, bank. It's Seacoast Commerce Bank, Seacoast Commerce Bank, and uh, get more information. Hey, and thank you for listening and watching the show. Uh, please connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, or your favorite social media, and uh, let us know what you think. And we appreciate hearing from you. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies, incredible training for commercial agents. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Red IQ, turning multifamily data into actionable intelligence.
visit RedIQ.com.